in the day, TV shows made for the US didn't really have last episodes. Canny TV producers, with their eyes on the lucrative aftermarket, wanted their shows to be heard in any order on a constant loop, and final episodes interfered with that. It's probably easier to count the shows that did have final episodes, where the storylines were all wrapped up, than those that didn't. Ironically, the series that did have final episodes tend to be remembered more fondly today in the era of Netflix binge-watching. One show that did have a final episode, but seems to be almost forgotten, was The Bionic Woman. Given the era, it's odd that this show had an ending at all. The Universal Action Factory of the late 70s and 1980s offered up formulaic but entertaining programming. Nothing too demanding or innovative, but solid family entertainment. As such, any real creativity tended to be with individual storylines and characterisation, rather than within the DNA of the shows themselves. They all followed the same standard pattern, and they all ended in such a way that next week's instalment would begin from the same place as this week's. The Bionic Woman and its big brother, the Six Million Dollar Man, weren't like Battlestar Galactica or the Incredible Hulk shows that had a built-in ending. Rather, they were more loose. Steve Austin, the titular Six Million Dollar Hero, could go on spy missions forever should audience interest in the ratings support him. Whereas, if David Banner ever found a cure for his unfortunate malady of turning into a seven-foot-tall green monster whenever he stubbed his toe, the jig was up. The jig was definitely up for the Bionic Woman, which had skirted cancellation once before. Towards the end of the second season, ratings had fallen, and Jamie Summers, our bionic heroine, had slipped slightly out of the top ten. ABC head Fred Silverman axed the series, largely due to a disagreement with series star Lindsay Wagner, who had had the temerity to negotiate a salary equal to that of her bionic brethren, Lee Majors. It's hard to blame Miss Wagner, who'd been in a very good negotiating position when it came to starring in this series. She didn't want to do it. Her first appearance in a two-part six-mil episode entitled The Bionic Woman saw her character being given by Onyx after an accident, presumably a perk for being the girlfriend of the main character. At the end of that episode, writer Ken Johnson was asked to kill Jamie to leave Austin free to pursue other women. Johnson said that this was a mistake, but did what his producers asked of him, and then stepped back as the network received thousands of letters decrying what had happened and demanding that Jamie return. This put Lindsay Wagner in the aforementioned interesting position. Her appearance in The Six Million Dollar Man had been a contractual obligation as a Universal Day player, and with this last performance, Wagner was free of her ironclad contract and able to pursue a career in features. Armed with the knowledge that his client didn't really care one way or another, Wagner's agent played hardball, securing Wagner an, at the time, incredible salary of $25,000 for a mere 21 days' work. This was to shoot the sequel two-parter, The Return of the Bionic Woman. Silverman had initially balked at paying out such a tidy sum, but ego must be sacrificed to the Nielsen gods. Wagner again fulfilled her contractual obligations, pocketed the money, and moved on. However, this episode was also a rating smash, starting the third season of The Six Million Dollar Man in fine style, and so Wagner was approached about reviving the role in her own weekly show. Again, Wagner demurred, and the network banded around other names to take over the role, names such as Stephanie Powers or Sally Field. The public, however, had spoken. 
it was Lindsay Wagner or nobody. Again, Wagner's representation went for broke. He wanted a multi-thousand dollar salary for a three-year contract, with a TV movie option to give Wagner a rule away from the Bionics, plus a percentage of the merchandise rights. Wagner received what she asked for, again to Silverman's chagrin, and the Bionic Woman spun off into her own series in January of 1976. The show quickly joined The Six Million Dollar Man as a top ten smash, and over here in the UK, where both shows aired on the ITV network, Jamie's debut saw her become the highest rated drama of the week, with ten million viewers and a top three in the ratings. With the show a go, Kenneth Johnson stepped in as executive producer and head writer, and immediately put a different slant on the show from its big brother. Johnson favoured morality plays, stories about people, and he was very keen to showcase Jamie as a capable and independent woman with a mind of her own. As such, The Bionic Woman wasn't a jiggle show. Wagner appeared in a bikini once in the show's run, and that was because she was on vacation at the beach. Granted, there were episodes where she was a showgirl or a beauty contest contestant, but hey, it was the 70s. By the end of the second season, though, things weren't all rosy in Bionic land. Wagner and Johnson were clashing over the direction of the show, and a ratings dip meant cancellation was on the cards. With ABC dropping the show, NBC stepped in at the 11th hour to pick it up, renewing the series for a third season. As the cast and crew returned for a new network, Wagner and Johnson's once genial relationship had soured further, and production of the seventh episode of the season, Motorcycle Boogie featuring Evil Knievel, saw Wagner refuse to leave her trailer until Johnson was removed as producer. As an aside, is there anything more 70s than an episode entitled Motorcycle Boogie that features Evil Knievel? It's practically carbon-dated 1977. Anyway, Johnson, fed up with the shenanigans, was only too happy to leave and landed on his feet as producer and main creative force behind The Incredible Hulk. The third season of The Bionic Woman continued, but without Johnson's guiding hands, the scripts became sillier and sillier. When Fred Silverman moved over from ABC to NBC, the producers knew the writing was on the wall, and Silverman cancelled the show again, because apparently there are no bigger children than those that work in Hollywood. With the writing on the wall, writer Stephen D'Souza was tasked with creating the final show, and he worked very closely with Wagner to ensure she got some of her ideas in. On the Run was written by D'Souza with significant contributions from Wagner, and directed by Tom Blank. On the 13th of May 1978, the Bionic Woman took her last run. There is no teaser advert for this episode, oddly, so you'll just have to make do with the opening theme.
people's hoving interview at the beginning of this episode. Oscar's regular secretary, Peggy Callahan, is away visiting her mum, and some strange fellow with a 70s porn stash is here to pick up Jamie for dinner. This guy isn't Steve Austin, so we'll pay him no never mind. Not Callahan tells Not Steve that Jamie is babysitting some kid who's in danger of being kidnapped, being as she is the daughter of a recently defected Cold War spy, because the 70s. Jamie is at the zoo with the kid because, symbolically, Jamie has started to feel trapped like an animal in a zoo. D'Souza puts a lot of little subtle shadings like this throughout the script. Jamie and the kid are offered a balloon, but he lets them go and they all fly away into the sky. The balloon man says he has more in his van, but he needs an assistant to help get them. In a scene that we will charitably assume is designed to show that Jamie's head isn't in the game, Jamie lets this strange man take the kid with him. Kel surprise, he's a wrongan and he's trying to kidnap the little moppet. Jamie does bionic stuff like throwing the kidnapper into a seal tank and then rescues the girl. However, Jamie's arm is damaged in the fight and the exposed wiring freaks our little moppet out. Something else D'Souza does in this episode is throw in a lot of little callbacks to both this series and Six Mill. This scene is a parallel to something that happened to Steve way back in the original pilot episode, and both have the same results. On a recent episode of the Comic Book Central podcast, D'Souza said he never thought that the producers did enough with the emotional toll having half your body replaced by a mechanical part would take on Jamie and Steve's psyche, and this was his chance to explore that. It also explores the central theme of the episode. Is Jamie a bionic woman or a woman? She ponders this late into the night, especially after the kid calls her the robot lady. Ungrateful brat. Sitting at home, Jamie notices, as if for the first time, that her bionic hand is cold to the touch. Unsure of her future, Jamie writes a letter to her boss, Oscar Goldman, played by Richard, not MacGyver Anderson. Dear Oscar, I think I know what's been bothering me these past few weeks. It's, um, it's the OSI. It's that one hundredth of one percent of the world that deals with espionage and security and secrets and paranoia. This minute piece of life has become my whole existence. Almost everything I do every day relates to it. And I've got to get back to some reality. I never asked for this arm. This army called the OSI. I didn't even really enlist. I, I was drafted. I, Oscar, you've been so kind to me, and you've been fair. And in spite of the system, you've even been loving. But I'm, I'm tired of answering the bugle. I'm, I'm tired of being called a winner just because Rudy's genius made it impossible for me to lose. And I'm tired of looking in the mirror and seeing an OSI agent instead of a woman. I'm just tired. I'm tired. like I have been on the front lines for three years. Now, I know it's going to take a little adjusting to get back into civilian life, and realistically speaking, I could be taking a chance by not being under Rudy's constant surveillance. But no one knows if that's actually necessary. And the way I'm feeling now, it's, it's more important to me to find out if I can live a normal life. I am willing to take the chance. It goes without saying that I'm going to miss you all very much. But uh, my mind is made up. And as of today, I am resigning from the OSI. 
Again, there's more subtle touches to the show in the way that it's directed. Once Jamie gives Oscar her resignation letter, Oscar is seen reading it alone in his office. He's surrounded by his many accomplishments, but is ultimately a lonely man in a large room. His only family, his colleagues, his only purpose, his job. It's a wonderful summation of why Jamie wants to leave. She doesn't want to end up like Oscar. Of course, it's never that easy. Oscar, I want to thank you for coming over right away. You know, this nation is facing nothing less than a tragedy. A tragedy at the hands of Janie Summers. A woman who is a walking library of our secrets. Not just the ones in her head, the ones in her bionics. Janie Summers is a prize that an enemy could simply snatch up and then examine at their leisure. So how can you possibly justify putting her out on the street? Well, gentlemen, Miss Summers isn't just a typical agent. I mean, we have no contracts or anything that ties us to her other than the gratitude she feels that we saved her life. That and an unspoken bond of trust. Now, her service might be at an end, but not that trust. Not after all we've been through together, after three years of service, after risking her life over and over again. Now, I know this woman. She would not go back on her word. She would not betray her country. Interesting words, Oscar. They remind me of Summer's last assignment. Here it is right here. Molari, the defecting scientist. I'm sure that his country felt the same way about him. Loyal, trustworthy, reliable. But you got him to switch sides, didn't you, Oscar? That's not the same thing, and you know it, Bill. Gentlemen, please. Oscar, we are not here to impugn the girl's integrity. But at the same time, she just simply cannot be left out on her own. Now, suppose you were kidnapped by an enemy. All right, do you think that their exploration of her bionics would be very pleasant for her? To say nothing of the effect that that would have on our national security? And that's not the only thing. This is not just our decision alone. I sit on the Joint Intelligence Committee, and I have to answer to some very picky colleagues. Frankly, I'm at a loss for a solution. Unless we go with the one that Mr. Parr suggested to me this morning. Oh? Relax, Oscar. You win this one. Summers feels she can no longer be active. We'd be happy to put her in a place where she can get the reward and the rest that she is entitled to. You see, Mr. Parr tells me that his National Security Bureau has several communities throughout the country where Miss Summers can continue to live a normal life and yet still have the protection of a very grateful government. So, you're going to lock her up, eh? Is that your idea of a grateful government? <laughs> Oscar, you talk like that, you'd think it's behind bars or something. It's not that bad. It's practically a resort. Of course. She can just roam around, do whatever she wants, until she gets too close to the edge. And then you just jerk the leech, huh? You're talking about a zoo. Well, we won't keep you from your work any longer, Mr. Goldman. In fact, since you are so very busy, I think that I will put the Janie Summers matter into Mr. Parr's hands. And after Janie's settled in her new home, why, you can fly out and visit her if you'd like. Okay. You've won the first round. But I'm going to do everything in my power to stop this. 
Oscar, I wouldn't do anything foolish if I... I may not be able to stop you. I may not be able to keep you from making us as inhuman and as calculating as the people we're fighting against, but I can do one thing. When you're finished building that cage and you're getting ready to put her name on it, get it right, will you? It's not Janie. It's Jamie. Jamie Summers. Say it. What? Say it! Jamie Summers. Good! Very good. Don't you ever forget it. This is a great scene. Over on Six Mill, Oscar was as stoic, some would say as wooden, as a man whose entire body was suffering from a living rigor mortis. On The Bionic Woman, where he had the far more energetic Lindsay Wagner to work against, Richard Anderson actually gets to emote. His concern for Jamie leads him to drop by her house, and there's another couple of great scenes. Max, the bionic dog, answers Jamie's phone for her, which is a, a moment of levity in an otherwise heavy episode, and Jamie squeezing Oscar's arm a tad too tightly reinforces her concern. Oscar lays out that Jamie just can't walk away. Jamie, you're not out. What do you mean I'm not out? Oscar, I thought you would understand. I understand. Well, what then? Uh, I spill my guts to you in a letter. And after you know how I feel, you come into my house and you tell me I'm not out? I mean, are you trying to tell me that I can't even quit if I want to? I mean, I, th I, I don't understand you. I, th I thought that I was more than just a, a pawn to you or, or, or one of your little tools. I just... You're hurting my arm. I... Feel very strange. I, I don't know. Um, I always felt like I could trust you. You can trust me. <laughs> it's other people. People that won't let you go. What other people? I don't understand. They can't make me work. That's ridiculous. Of course they can't. But they consider part of you government property. That's why they're willing to let you retire. They've got the place all picked out. Oh, it's very pleasant. It's sunny. Plenty of beautiful recreational facilities. Don't worry about any personal needs you might have. The people in charge will give you whatever it is you want. Freedom, huh? Uh, Oscar, can't you do something? I'm doing all I can, but it's out of my hands, but not out of my mind. But I better get out of here before I end up telling you that the NSB are on their way over here that you've got 20 minutes to pack and to get out of here. And that I might tell you to run, use all the skills that I taught you to prevent us from paying you back in this way. What about Max? I'll take care of Max. Allison, you haven't got much time. Hurry. Oh. Oscar leaves with Max and Jamie has what amounts to an emotional breakdown. 
Wagner won an Emmy for her portrayal of Jamie Summers, and it's well-deserved. Wagner made Jamie a living, breathing character, somebody the audience could care about and empathise with, but one can't help but feel Wagner is also pouring a lot of her own feelings into this scene. It was well known that she wanted out of the show, and her contract being up at the end of this season probably helped her make the decision that she wanted to move on. Jamie Summers was becoming a millstone around Lindsay Wagner's neck. In later years, Wagner has said that at 26, she was probably too young to deal with the ramifications of fame and all that went with it, and she should have appreciated it more at the time than she actually did. Ken Johnson, who Wagner has also made her peace with in the intervening years, has noticed that Lindsay was being manipulated by her management and relationships, and he's even hinted at some substance abuse problems, problems that she thankfully seems to have put behind her. Whatever the case, we weren't used to seeing our heroes be so raw, and it's as powerful now as it was then. Sadly, the middle third of the episode is a misstep. After an excellent first third, we are treated to a flabby midsection where Jamie is pursued by her own people, and the not-Steve character who figures out that Jamie is at a remote cabin in the snowy wilds where they recently took an idyllic vacation. I feel that Jamie should have been captured at home, perhaps the government men threaten Oscar's career if she doesn't come freely. We could then have had a middle section actually set in the retirement village for spies that is mentioned. It could have been a cool spoof on the prisoner before Jamie decided that a gilded cage is still a cage and made a break for it. As it is, this section is a bit of a letdown in the overall scheme of the episode and is far too padded with shots of cars following people and montage shots. There's even an extended scene where Jamie runs when not Steve finds her, although we do have another good conversation. Well, there's no big mystery about it. I was worried and I wanted to be with you. And you want to hide out with me? No. I mean, I want to be with you, no matter what. You realize that you might spend the rest of your life running? Well, if that's what you really want to do. But I don't think you should run anymore. I think you should give yourself up. You do, do you? Well, I have this selfish little dream about being free, you see. Well, how free do you think you're going to be running? They want to put me in a cage, Chris. Or put me in a zoo. And I cannot live like that. I don't have to. Jamie, they track us down. The NSB is too big. There's too many of them. You can't get away. Oh, yes, I can. Because I'm the best there is, remember? I'm the robot lady. I spent three years learning all their tricks and I can get away from anyone. Jamie, you're kidding yourself. You're playing in their ballpark. They're the teacher, you're the student. Eventually, they're gonna get you. Well, eventually's fine with me. What is all this nonsense? You're feeling sorry for yourself. I'm not feeling sorry for myself. I'm fed up. Three years ago, they brought me back to life. I felt very grateful, okay? I said I would work for them. I decided to become an agent and go on a mission occasionally. Then, occasionally became all the time. Chris, I haven't had any life of my own at all. All I have had is missions. I don't like what I've been doing, and I don't like what I've become. Well, it's good enough for me to fall in love with. Oh, really? Well, what are you in love with? If you're a leg man, honey, you're out of luck. Hey, now, wait a minute. I found out you were bionic on what, the fourth date? If you weren't exactly what I wanted, there wouldn't have been a fifth, believe me. I, I don't care how much blood you got pulsing around in you or whether or not you can beat me at arm wrestling. Because bionic or not, Jamie Summers was more woman than I'd ever met before, and that's why I fell in love with her. And that's why I wanted to come back with me, so we can work this thing out. 
And that's also why I'm willing to live in that zoo with you if that's the only way we can be together. I wish I could believe you. I try. It's easy. It's easy for you to say. Jamie, look. I want to spend my whole life throwing snowballs at you. Kissing this face. Holding your hand, stroking your hair. Why did you take that hand? Well, that's a silly question, isn't it? No, it's not. Because I wanted to touch you. Because you know which hand is real and alive and which one isn't. That's oh, why. Jamie. Look, I understand your repulsion. Believe me, I have had to touch it 24 hours a day for the past three years. I mean, you did what anybody else would oh, do. Wait a minute. I'm not just anybody. I happen to be the man that's in love with you. The problem is not how we feel about each other. It's how I feel about myself. I guess I'm gonna have to work that one out alone. Where are you going? Please don't follow me. The scene between not Steve and Jamie could have taken place in the village, and then Jamie escapes, and then we're back to the script as seen on TV. Jamie is now hitchhiking in a David Banner style when she's picked up by a sketchy man, because Jamie apparently never got the memo about strange men and cars. After he turns her in, Jamie runs. The government have set her up as being some kind of bank-robbing fugitive, and Jamie ends up back in the zoo once again confronting her feelings of being caged. D'Souza throws in a trippy scene that calls back to Jamie's reference of Humpty Dumpty back in the early days of the series. None of these callbacks are intrusive or winking at the audience, rather they are nice touches, and if you get them, they raise a smile, but if you don't, they still work in the context of the show. A random kid then shows up to talk to Jamie about his father, who sounds like Fozzie Burr, and the child reveals he can't play ball with his dad anymore since an accident rendered him blind. Jamie puts him right. He's your father, Tommy. I know that. Well, then you should also know that what makes him him is not his eyes, or his legs, or his arms, or anything else. What makes anybody an individual, a person, is, is, it's what goes on in here and here. And nothing, Tommy, nothing that happens on this earth can ever change that. Nothing can ever change that. I guess, uh, I guess I believe it. <laughs> oh, I believe it. Magic? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I am magic, you beautiful child. I am. I'm so magic, I just changed my own mind. You, I know you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm very sorry that I ruined your ball, but I bet your dad will get you another one or anything else you want if you just be with him. Tommy, I, I want you to go in and love him for what he is and for what he was and what he will be. And don't even think about what he isn't. Because it's so unimportant. Okay? Okay, There's no point in trying anything, Miss Summers. You're surrounded. 
We know you're a bionic woman. No, sir. I'm just a woman. This is where the original script ended. After this line, Jamie ran, leapt over the men who were surrounding her, out of the park and fled, running off into the distance. The show faded to black and ended. According to D'Souza, this was shot as scripted and the original ending was as per Wagner's wishes. She was done. However, the producers felt this ending would hinder the syndicated reruns. So this new ending was tacked on. I have found a way to be at peace with my bionics by accepting the fact that I have no choice. The alternatives are totally unacceptable. Now, I have no objection to taking assignments, but with some very strict conditions. You can write your own ticket. Now, you hear me out before you say that. Because it's not going to be smooth sailing anymore. It's not going to be blow the whistle and Jamie jumps. And please go on. I need some time to have a life of my own also. That may mean marriage, children, I don't know. But it does mean some work that I feel good about. My teaching, helping kids, uh, something positive. Because, you see, I experience the OSI as negative activity. It's, uh, it's fending off disaster. It's survival time. And I must have some things in my life that, that give me perspective so that my work for you will mean something. Now, if that seems unreasonable, I'm sorry, but that's how I feel about it. No, that's not unreasonable, Miss Summers. You were afraid you'd become less woman than machine. Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of men like me who became machines and didn't even know it. We were too busy making rules and regulations and so worried about our own fears that we forgot what life was all about, which is really just living. I'm very glad that you're going to be coming back here to help remind us that we're human. Thank you very much, Senator. Oscar? Thank you. To me, this undermined the last 44 minutes of the episode substantially. D'Souza is curious how they got Wagner to agree to film this as she was happy with the script as written. Still, that the show even had a final episode makes it unusual in the TV landscape of the day and one worth remembering, especially in a medium where commercial considerations always seem to outweigh the artistic impulse. The Bionic Woman is a show that doesn't seem to get the love it deserves in relation to its place in TV history and its depiction of women as positive role models for young girls. Jamie was a smart, funny and more than capable woman who rarely found herself in states of undress and tended to approach the problems in a thoughtful and intelligent way. Producer Ken Johnson likewise doesn't perhaps get the credit he deserves for his depiction of women. In this show, he created a character more than capable of going toe-to-toe with her male counterpart, and in his subsequent series, The Incredible Hulk, V and Alien Nation, all of his female characters were intelligent people in competent and demanding positions. The Bionic Woman shows its age in many ways, from the low-tech approach to special effects and the fashions, which are always good for a laugh, but it's still an entertaining hour of television if you catch an episode. Lindsay Wagner was an engaging lead and probably my first TV crush, and there's no denying that she deserves an awful lot of credit for the popularity of the character. This is not the last we would see of the Bionic Woman, and she and the Six Million Dollar Man would return in three reunion television movies in the late 1980s and early 1990s. But these are topics for another show.
have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Bailey Tude podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. And we're back to uh, look at some correspondence from our listeners. Our first email tonight is from Chris Franklin. Hello, Christopher. Hello, Andy. All told tales of Spider-Man, which I thought was quite clever because they've, they've all been told and they're not untold i'll move on nice wrap up to your untold tale series i must have forgotten roger stern was supposed to take over the title and move the focus to the college years any miss stern spider material is regretful thanks for the chuckle when discussing professor warren noticing gwen's sweater puppies he liked them so much he made a purr all of his own i really enjoyed your overview of this series and i think i may have to look into collecting the omnibus on this one it would be nice to have a done-in-one volume that fits in so well with my old Marvel Tales reprints. Looking forward to your bionic musings, Chris. Well, I hope you enjoyed the bionic musings that you just heard, Christopher, and it is very nice to hear from you, as usual. Thank you. Uh, the next email tonight is Nathaniel Wayne. Spider-Man Homecoming is his simple title. Hello there. Hey there, Andrew. He's not hello there. It's just hey there. I don't know where hello there came from. Leave me alone. Tired. Hey there, Andrew. Hey there, Nathaniel. I caught some of your thoughts on the new Spider-Man film Homecoming at the end of the most recent Palace of Glittering Delights, as well as the thoughts as one of your listeners. I'll try not to dwell on my own opinions too much. Short version, I liked it when I saw it, and I liked it even more as time goes on and I think on it, but instead want to talk about something I've noticed. The feedback you read was the first viscerally negative reaction I personally have heard towards the film. Up to this point, the most negative thing I'd heard was, it's fine, I guess, but that reaction made me realise something. All of the colder responses I've heard have come from people I know to be fans of old-school Spider-Man, 60s and 70s era. I suppose I understand that, as this veers away from that whole era, both superficially and in general feel. The thing is, though, I personally felt that fans of that era already got their movies with the first two Raimi films. They were pretty spot-on representations of that specific era of Spider, between hitting precisely the origin beats to Peter's characterization, having Norman's death recreated pretty well, spoiler alert, and so on. 
It's actually part of why I liked but didn't love the first film. I came in onto Spider-Man in the 90s, which is not a great era, I realise that, and fell in love with an adult who had human flaws but also had a decent handle on the things given the unusual life he's led. So the movie Spider-Man, hewing closer to the 60s and 70s sad sack teenager who practically walks around with a permanent kick-me sign on his back, wasn't my favourite thing. But of course, if that's the version of Peter that you fell in love with, then it was spot on for you. And that's kind of my point. Whilst I'm not saying old school fans of Spidey must adore the Raimi films, I do feel they were made with the sensibilities of that era and catered largely to that audience. You had your go, guys. It's okay if the new one isn't aimed at you. As usual with Nathaniel, he raises some excellent points. Um, I, I find I don't disagree with him. I think that the Sam Raimi films were very much made with the old school Spider-Man in mind. I lean more towards them being specifically the Lee Remeter stuff rather than the Lee Ditko stuff. And I think that's where my problem ultimately comes from, in that I am a fan of that, that vintage. I personally believe we've never had a Lee Ditko Spider-Man on screen, and I don't think we ever will get a Lee Ditko Spider-Man on screen. And I'm, I've kind of made my peace with it. I'm kind of okay with that now. I, I realise that time has moved on. And a lot of what made the Lee Ditko era Spider-Man brilliant was the notion that it was a superhero soap opera crime noir melodrama. If you go back and read those issues, there's an awful lot of crime fiction in there. And the movies have kind of eschewed that in favour of the big supervillains, which is, you know, good. But Dr. Octopus ended up engaged in a crime war with Hammerhead. The Green Goblin wanted to take over the racket. The kingpin was the kingpin of the crime in the area. There was always a strong crime noir feel to Spider-Man that I don't think has been serviced by the movies. All that being said, my favourite of the Raimi films is the first one, for all of the reasons Nathaniel just said. It is a love letter to the early Spider-Man. I don't think they got everything right. You know, as I've said before, they, they graduated high school a little too early for me, but that's the problem when you cast somebody who's pushing 30 as a 16-year-old. Uh, the second one I think is good, and I don't have as many problems with the third one as a lot of people do. It's turgid in places. But I do think that third one can be tidied up with a pair of scissors. You know, if I add the editing know-how um, of a movie, of the movie software, sorry, that you can download, I have often thought as an experiment for myself to learn how to do that stuff would be whittle Spider-Man 3 down into a film that was slightly better. Um, but I do think all of the bare bones of a good film are in there. So the Amazing Spider-Man series came along and it was leaning more towards the ultimate versions of the characters, despite the fact Gwen Stacy was clearly the Lee Remeter version. I didn't really dislike the Amazing Spider-Man films. I thought they had some interesting moments. I felt that they went out of their way to not do what Raimi had done. But the problem with that is the story is less satisfying as a result. And I think both those films, Sony were far too interested in launching their own franchise of Spider-Man pictures at the expense of making a decent Spider-Man standalone. Whereas 
this is my problem with the Warner Brothers approach as well. They are doing the same thing. Suicide Squad was an extended advert for what is to come. Batman vs Superman had moments in it that were purely adverts for what is to come. Marvel didn't really do that within the films until they got into the end of Phase 1, beginning of Phase 2, when you can argue that an awful lot of Civil War is setting up the future. But I think in Phase 1, when they were setting up this universe, if you take the tag scenes out from the end credits, those films all stand alone as standalone movies, irrespective of being part of the wider universe. And it's only with the little seeding in of the post credit sequences of Nick Fury showing up and saying, hey, you want to join the Avengers? that those movies become part of a larger whole. The DC and the Spider-Man, the Sony Spider-Man flicks, felt very much like they were trying to throw you into this wider hole without setting the world up properly. Moving on, Nathaniel continues, That said, even though I haven't made my mind up yet if I like Homecoming or Spider-Man 2 more, I will say that even if Homecoming takes the top spot, I'd never say that I'd wanted it instead of the Raimi films. If the very first outing we got with the character had been this divergent in terms of tinkering with the characters and vibe, it would have ticked me off. But since we already got was, to my view at least, a very comics-accurate version, I actually really enjoyed the changes and new spin on things. This is the way reboots should work, not just resetting the continuity to tell essentially the same story again, <coughs> Amazing Spider-Man, <coughs> but figuring out what new things you can do now that they wouldn't have been as acceptable if you were making the first film version of this. Now that there's a base model already out there, what can we do different? Anyway, those are my thoughts on the reactions I've seen. Great listening as always. Take care. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Way. Yeah, I, I like I say, I... Having said all that preamble that I said in between your, your second and third paragraph, I enjoyed Homecoming for exactly the reasons that you said there. I'm going into this film knowing it's not going to be a comics-accurate version of the comics that I wanted it to be, Lee Ditko. I'm also going into Spider-Man Homecoming knowing that it is going to be a different take on Spider-Man simply because of the universe that Marvel has established. This is a Spider-Man or a Peter Parker who has grown up in a world where there are Hulks, there are Captain Americas, there are Tony Starks. And whilst Peter was probably more in awe of Reed Richards in the comics, it makes sense that he would look up to Tony more in this film universe. I actually felt they went a little bit too far with that. And I did want there to be a point where Peter realises that Tony isn't necessarily the best role model. Um, maybe that'll come in future films. I don't know. But I think completely omitting Uncle Ben was a massive misstep. Because then the end scene recreation of Amazing Spider-Man issue 33 is purely based on what Tony has said to him. Rather than what his Uncle Ben has said to him. And his Uncle Ben's motivation should always be the prime motivator for Spider-Man. I think I said this in the last show. I didn't see this kid that Tom Holland is playing having the hubris to do what Peter Parker needs to do for the story to unfold as it does. Tobey Maguire, I bought it. Andrew Garfield, I bought it. Especially with Andrew Garfield, who was more of a douchebag. But this Tony Holland version of the character I felt was too nice to have done that. And so I am actually very interested in seeing how the origin played out 
in the homecoming world. Maybe not on film, maybe they could do it as a digital comic or whatever. But I am interested in seeing how that played. As you say, though, as a completely different take on on the Spider-Man character becoming into a universe that is completely different from the comics one, Spider-Man Homecoming was therefore very enjoyable. It had some great performances, it had some neat moments, it was was a, a relief to see that not everything had been spoiled by the trailer, and only really the Murray Jane reveal fell flat for me. And it's not the actress playing the part... If they had just not said her name throughout the entire film, not given her name, and then at the very end when she does the my name is Murray Jane, people call me MJ line, have that be the first time we learn her name and have her be Murray Jane Watson. I wouldn't have had any problem with that at all. But I think that the MJ reveal tacked onto that character felt like being different for the sake of being different rather than hewing to an established character or playing it so that throughout the film you don't know that she's Mary Jane and then at the end you could have had because she stood in a big in front of a big tiger sign because the tiger is the the high school emblem I think for whatever sport it is that they play so having her stood in front of that saying um that she's MJ would have worked really well but other than that I, I did enjoy Homecoming I think it's got a lot of potential for scope beyond this and I'm, I'm very interested in seeing where they take the character in the future. Anyway, that's it. Thank you, Nathaniel, for the very thought-provoking email. Um, that killed a couple of minutes of a show that was quite short. Uh, as usual, this is a 2 True Freaks presentation. If you wish to buy anything, go and use the Amazon link at 2TrueFreaks.com because it helps keep the light on and helps me prepare, continue to make content like this without actually having to stick my hand in my pocket. Next time, I've not got a clue at the moment. Um, it could be anything at this point. Until Tales is wrapped up, uh, I could wish to talk about anything at all. So we'll see how it goes. Thank you for joining me, and we'll see you next week. Or next time, not next week. Whatever. Goodbye. Goodbye.